Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I'm glad you're with us for this episode. I first heard about the $73 million settlement between the families of nine victims of the 2012 Sandy Hook Massacre and Remington Arms from my good friend Joan Carey. Joan and I attended school in Newtown, Connecticut together in the early 1960s. For both of us, the shooting of 20 children and six adults cut deep. I went to Newtown on that cold December night in 2012 to find the town in complete shock over how and why this happened. It is something I will never forget. The settlement is groundbreaking in that it's believed to be one of the largest ever. Remington manufactured and sold the AR-15 style rifle that was used to kill all those innocents. The monetary settlement wasn't all there was to this, however. The families also got Remington to turn over internal documents about how they marketed the weapon used in the massacre. As you might expect, this was a key sticking point in the negotiations with Remington resisting the release of their internal plans. Yet the aim of the suit and the settlement were made plain by Josh Roscoff, lead attorney for the plaintiffs. And I quote, These nine families have shared a single goal from the very beginning, to do whatever they could to help prevent the next Sandy Hook. As we communicated online, Joan Carey expressed the hope that this settlement would lead to fewer guns on American streets and in the nation's homes. I told her I wasn't sure that even this landmark settlement would have that effect, much as we both to like to see it happen. Firearms, sad to say, are baked into America's DNA, a reflection of how we see ourselves. Whether it's to shoot defenseless animals for sport, to gird one's loins against some tyrannical government overreach that never seems to happen, or simply to shout Second Amendment when all else fails, gun advocates will always try to justify their lust for lethal weapons. This country may never come to terms with the fact, for example, that while Canada has more guns per capita than the USA, it has much less gun violence. The inability to confront the nation's gun lust ensures there will be more mass shootings, whether in schools, movie theaters, nightclubs, or wherever people are gathered. As I've said before, if ever there was a time to confront the nation's gun worship, it was after Sandy Hook. This is not, by the way, intended to impugn the integrity of gun owners who use them for skeet shooting or other recreational use that doesn't involve killing anything. I could go further in detailing the history of the use of the gun to settle and expand America. It's a history that doesn't always get taught in its fullness, but it's a history that exists nonetheless. And one giant impediment to filing lawsuits similar to that of Sandy Hook, of the Sandy Hook families, that is, is the federal law that immunizes gun manufacturers from most lawsuits. Though the industry may not want to admit it, the settlement might just break the ice that's allowed them to market weapons to people who then use them to kill innocents. As for the Sandy Hook families, this settlement, combined with the, default, the potential default judgments against InfoWars conspiracy theorist Alex Jones, should provide them with a measure 
of justice. And I could go on and on about Alex Jones because I consider him to be lower than the low. He said on numerous occasions, numerous occasions, folks, that what happened at Sandy Hook didn't happen at Sandy Hook. And that the children who were killed were actors. And that this was some kind of a conspiratorial mess that was dreamt up by God knows who. And then when he got called on it, his lawyers refused to turn over the documents, hence the default judgments against Alex Jones. I believe that the Sandy Hook families deserve even more than the $73 million they got from Remington Arms. And I hope that the judge in the Alex Jones case hits him for all he's worth for spreading, it's not even misinformation. It is vicious and ugly nonsense. Yet we should be clear that no court judgment will ever bring the children and the loved ones of the Sandy Hook families, none of them will ever be brought back. Up next, how are you processing the latest developments in Ukraine? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. The latest from Ukraine seems to be just that, the latest. Seems like things change almost hourly. Unfortunately, I've been cursed with a fair amount of skepticism when it comes to government accounts of almost anything and almost any government. I also take news attributed to intelligence sources with a grain of salt sometimes. What this means is when there are dueling narratives, as in the case of, U- of Ukraine, I tend to draw from a number of media accounts and then draw my own conclusions. In this case, there are enough conflicting accounts and intelligence sources quoted to choke a horse. Certainly, there are enough media outlets both in the States and abroad to allow someone to distill their own opinion about what's true and what is not. And by the way, that's not just applicable to the Ukraine. What follows is my own distillation of recent events. Keep in mind that by the time you hear this, things may well have changed profoundly. According to most Western media I've encountered, Russian President Putin is bound and determined to invade Ukraine to expand his sphere of influence. His denials of that intent are little more than a smokescreen according to Western media, designed to mask his determination to make Ukraine a client state of Russia. That's why, according to Western accounts, he's massed anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 troops in and along the border between Russia and Ukraine. The West has called into question Russia's assertion that they've moved troops back to their bases after concluding exercises last week. For all the bluster about crippling sanctions on the part of the U.S. and our NATO allies, Putin has not backed up one bit, not in terms of what he's looking for from the West, and he probably won't. Yet with all this, the West still holds out hope 
for some type of diplomatic resolution. Now, let me say something about that. I believe it's very difficult to conduct diplomacy when your public statements about the people you're negotiating with, rightly or wrongly, are calling them liars. Essentially, the West has called Putin a liar about his denials regarding the invasion of Ukraine. Now, they may be 100% right, but to say they want diplomacy while calling Putin a liar kind of gets lost in translation somehow there. How you actually build a foundation for constructive negotiation is a little bit beyond me when it comes to that. And by the way, Putin calls the West liars too. This is not a one-way street here, and I am certainly not a shill for Vladimir Putin. Now, the Russians, on the other hand, say the aggression here is coming from the West, specifically from the United States. While insisting they have no intention to invade Ukraine, they argue that NATO is expanding eastward, and by refusing to rule out denying NATO membership to Ukraine, is risking their security. They further argue that the troops along the border are within Russian territory, and therefore nobody's business but theirs. They also say further that shelling in the disputed eastern province of Donetsk is the fault of Ukraine and has begun evacuating women and children to Russia. Now, the Ukraine government, surprise here, denies Putin's assertions about their aggression. So who's telling the truth here? Just who is the aggressor? And most important, can diplomacy still work? The short answer appears to be no. There are some basic questions that ought to be asked of all the players here. Are the publics of the U.S. and its allies ready to go to war? I don't think so. They talk a lot about sanctions, but almost nobody in NATO, and certainly not the United States, especially after Afghanistan, nobody is talking about putting boots on the ground. The boots on the ground are Putin's boots, not the U.S. and its allies. Is Putin serious when he says Russia has no intention of invading Ukraine? Again, there is no guarantee. He could be lying through his teeth about that. If you listen or look at media, both Russian and U.S. outlets are trading their own versions of propaganda to win the hearts and minds of their own people. You can make the case that Russia's media is more likely to project their view of the crisis and slightly less willing to challenge the Russian narrative. At least, that's what I've seen in the media I've been watching. But you see, that's just me. I've never wanted to impose my opinion on other people. All I'm urging people to do is take a look at media whose outlook you may not even agree with. Use it to sift through ideas projected by media and make sure that you cast a wide net and then make your own decision. I know there are times when you have trouble tolerating media you think is pumping out disinformation. This is true for me as well. But that's how you recognize propaganda and disinformation. It's called critical thinking. And I'm sad to say 
There are those who don't want you to use critical thinking or make it part of your intellectual arsenal. Trust me, critical thinking works, especially with an issue like Ukraine. Next, in this episode, is it any surprise Ahmad Arbery's murderers tossed racist language around among themselves? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. During their trial, the racist murderers of Ahmad Arbery steadfastly maintained his shooting had nothing to do with race. The trio, Greg and Travis McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, defended their actions as self-defense. You know by now that a jury did not buy it. Now they're dealing with the second level of their offense. They're being tried on federal hate crime charges. The prosecution has to prove not just that the three are racists, that seems to be pretty obvious, but that their racism drove them to act against Arbery. That is a high bar, and one big reason there are so few federal hate crime convictions. However, in this case, an FBI analyst testified about social media messages shared by the McMichaels and by Bryant. They look for all the world like racism 101. One said he didn't want his daughter dating a black man and called him the N-word. Another said he loved his job because, quoting here, zero N-words work with me. That same racist, Travis McMichael, spoke of killing black people. You'd think we were in a time warp and have gone back to 1955 back when attitudes like this were prevalent, both in the South and in other parts of the country. You'd also think exposure of this type of racism would make a hate crime conviction cut and dried. As mentioned earlier, perhaps not. Maybe we shouldn't care. Two of these killers have no hope of ever being released from prison. Brian will do a minimum of 30 years. So why worry? I'll tell you why, at least in my humble opinion. I think it's important for the federal government to say categorically that racist violence will not be tolerated by civilized human beings. Certainly the government cannot control behavior, cannot control attitudes. And Lord knows if they tried, A, they'd have a big problem trying to do it in America, but B, they shouldn't be trying to do it at all. That's not saying that these sorts of attitudes ought to be tolerated. Obviously, they shouldn't. But just as obviously, there was a time in America when these attitudes were, in fact, tolerated. Now, the same FBI analyst testified that Travis McMichael, among other things, associated blacks with criminality, spoke explicitly about committing violence against black people and even managed to blame black people for his struggle to get a commercial driver's license. There's more, but suffice to say, these three will never be confused with having the least bit of empathy toward black people. An ideal verdict here 
would be guilty and a sentence that would keep Brian. The other two are already in jail for the rest of their lives. Brian still could get out in 30 years. If he's found guilty, I hope he gets a sentence that never lets him out of prison either. And finally, yet another attempt to gut the Voting Rights Act, one of the singular accomplishments of the civil rights era. A U.S. District Court judge, a Trump appointee, of course, has ruled that Section 2 of the Act, which protects voters of color against gerrymandering and other forms of voter suppression, can only be enforced by the Justice Department. No civil rights groups or individuals, according to this ruling, could be allowed to file suit. That effectively moots Section 2 unless there's a Democrat in the White House who appoints an attorney general willing to do that work. It's yet another Trump judicial swipe at people's right to vote. Now, I've talked in past episodes about the fact that I seriously, seriously underestimated the efforts that would be put in to gutting the Voting Rights Act. I thought it would never, ever happen. I thought it was settled. I thought it was law. And I thought, obviously, it was a great law. I was wrong. Not about it being a great law, of course, but about the efforts to try and gut it. Those efforts have been largely successful, sad to say. 2013, there was a Supreme Court ruling that gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And now a district court judge, certainly not the Supreme Court, but a district court judge is going after Section 2. And again, Section 2 is the one that really fights back against gerrymandering and other forms of voter suppression, trying to keep black people away from the polls. Now, this ruling could be overturned on appeal, and some legal experts think it will be. Yet it points out a crucial reason why voting is so essential. Frankly, I'm not sure most folks think about the judiciary when they go to the polls. However, just think about what Trump did to the Supreme Court, among other judicial bodies. A conservative majority may well overturn Roe versus Wade. That's why rulings like this one matter, even though it was a district court in Arkansas. It speaks, along with other recent rulings, of an effort to take black voters back to a time when the right to vote was regularly impeded, in some cases, by violence. We should never forget that the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, and the assassination of Mega Rivers in the same year were both terrorist responses against efforts to register blacks to vote. Now, if that's critical race theory, so be it. I remember those days all too clearly. I was a kid when those children died. I was a little older than they were. But four innocent girls killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church. And they weren't trying to register anybody to vote. They were there to go to Sunday school. And they ended up paying for it with their lives. It may be hyperbole to invoke these acts when looking at modern day voter suppression. Or is it? 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.